Who owns your research samples and information? And, and when we talk about this, I want you to be thinking about your own samples and information, as well as those that you may hold for research purposes. So there's a sort of there's, there's two things to be thinking about as I'm talking there. And what I wanted to do was just outline some of the legal requirements in this area. Because I think intuitively we sort of think, oh, we own our information, we own our samples. And in actual fact, the legal requirements in this area are quite different. So let's just think about how the law thinks about property. And it's really property rights which actually give you some kind of ownership over things. So the law actually says that property rights are a bundle of rights and that there's different elements to them. So property rights um, in law actually give you the right to sell or dispose of property, so you could destroy property. They give you the right to lease or mortgage the property, maybe license the use of parts of the property to other people, or you could use property as collateral. And if you have property rights in something, you could also have an action for theft or damage to the property. So let's think about samples and samples in the context of research. So as I said, property rights actually give you rights over things. So if you think about a car, you have the right to actually sell or dispose of a car, run into a lamppost, though I wouldn't recommend it. But you, you, can, you can actually deal with it um, in the ways that I've described before. Houses are quite interesting because in terms of property in land, you can have different kinds of access to, say, a house. You could sublet a room in a house. You could actually go away for six months and have tenants come into a house. You may have a water authority that actually has an easement over your land so that they can access drains. You might have a pathway across your property which gives individuals right to walk across it. So that's an example of a lot of, of that bundle of rights, the different types of rights that might apply to property. In the case of your jewels, you may also have a situation where you want to sell them, you want to pawn them. So when we think about property rights over things, it actually gives us a number of rights that we can use. Now body parts are quite different. So in relation to body parts, the basic principle in law, which has come out of the common law, is that there's no property rights in um, body parts or tissue. But having said that, the law always has exemptions to basic principles. So we do have cases where property, it's been recognised there is a property right in, a, in the body of a dead relative, so that relatives can then dispose of the body appropriately and bury their relative. But the most important case for what I'm talking about today is the case of Aaron Kelly, where it was established that you could have a property right if you had exercised work and skill over 
a, a body part. So Kelly was an artist, and what Kelly wanted to do was to use body parts as a mould to actually develop sculpture. So what he did was he went to somebody who worked um, in the Royal College of Surgeons and said, I will pay you to give me body parts that, have, that you've been working on to get them ready for students to actually dissect and to be used for teaching purposes. So what he wanted to do, and this isn't a very good picture, was actually do these kind of sculptures. So the Kelly case was a difficult one for the court because if you have this principle that there's no property rights in the body, how could you possibly convict someone for stealing? So what they said was because the Royal College had actually exercised a certain degree of work and skill, then actually this application of skills, such as dissection or preservation techniques for teaching or exhibition purposes, actually amounted to an activity which would give property rights. And therefore, on the basis of that, Kelly could be prosecuted for stealing because these body parts had become property. The question that remained from this case was, does this also apply to human body parts from the living? Because that was all about people who died. And the other major question is, who has the property rights? Is it the person who actually does the preparation and the dissection? Or was it the Royal College of Surgeons? And these questions weren't really clearly made out by the court. And the court was effectively saying, look, Parliament should decide this. This isn't up for us. This isn't something that we should decide. This is an issue of public policy. But Parliament hasn't done that, so these questions still remain. So the outcome of the Kelly case is that an individual cannot own their body parts or their body or parts of it. And this has a deep resonance with kind of anti-slavery principles that if I could own my body, well, then maybe someone else could as well. But it sort of ignores the trafficking, the trafficking that goes on using organs, and it also ignores the way that human tissue has become a very valuable commodity, particularly for use in biotech. So an individual cannot own their own body or parts of it, and if you applied this reasoning, unless they exercised work and skill. And this has a very Lockean basis to it as well. But what the, court, what the courts do recognise is a right of bodily integrity. So you can't actually remove or interfere with someone's body unless you have consent. And to do so would actually be a battery. So you, you need consent for the removal of tissues from individuals, but you don't need it for subsequent use. So this case has been accepted within the UK as really giving some property rights to those who hold samples of body parts. For example, for researchers. So I think the basic principle is people assume that if they've um, exercised work and skill, then they are entitled to actually have some kind of control or use of these samples or body parts. 
but that, that is open to debate. So what are the benefits of property rights? And I talked about this initially. So if you're a researcher, and say if you held samples in a biobank, if you had full property rights, it would mean that you could use, transfer, sell, or dispose of a samples in a biobank. And that's important for commercial collaborations, for funding applications to a certain degree. You could use it to raise finance if you had a spin-off company or you were a commercial operation. And it would also give you this right to have an action in trespass or theft. So this is happening even though, and it's kind of business as usual, even though the legal position is really not clear. So let's think about 10 years on and a case that happened last year, last February I think it was. It was a case that happened in Bristol and lots of interesting things happen in Bristol I've decided. And it involved four men who had deposited sperm uh, they were cancer patients, they deposited it with the Bristol Hospital and what they wanted to do was after their chemotherapy, they were young men and they still actually wanted to have the possibility of having children. So they deposited this sperm in the hospital freezer. So this was the case of Jonathan Yearworth and the North Bristol NHS Trust. So the freezer actually broke down and the sperm was destroyed. And the court actually had a number of legal arguments put to them. And barrister said, well, it would be a battery if the sperm was still inside the men, so why can't you know, we have some kind of basis for a, an action? And the court, in the end, just kind of threw up their hands and said, look, look, this is all nonsense. And they said... There is a property right. These men do have a property right in the sperm. But, of course, they qualified it. And they said, it's only when it, this only applies when it's products of a living human body, as opposed to the Kelly case. And these, the, the parts of the body are intended for use by the person whose bodies have generated them. So they were very narrowly confining it to this case. And also they said that they didn't think that this would apply to donated products for use by others such as in the case of research. So they were recognising that Parliament hadn't actually done anything to address this issue. But they also felt that it was unfair that these men didn't have any rights to take action against the North Bristol Trust, which the court actually said had been negligent in allowing the freezer to break down. So what are the implications of this decision? It means that if you're like the North Bristol Trust and you hold yourself out as having special skills to store material, then you actually have a duty of care. And I, don't, I think most people in this room would agree with that. And this obligation arises because the taking of possessions in the circumstances involves an assumption of responsibility for the safekeeping of the goods. So what they did was they used a legal argument or a legal principle of conversion in this case. But as I said before, it doesn't apply to tissue donated for research purposes. So I think for researchers you have to be careful 
if you're in the interface between research and the clinic where there's the possibility that individuals may, there may be further use of the items that they're donating for research. So what about information? So what about the information that attaches to tissue, but also when we actually take tissue and we may isolate the DNA and get a sequence readout? Can we own information in the same way? Are there the same kind of legal rights that attach to samples? Do they also attach to data? So I think what's important here is to understand a distinction between personal rights and property rights. And basically, in relation to data, the bundle of rights, the idea of property, doesn't apply. What we're talking about is individual rights. There are obligations that arise to individuals under the Data Protection Act. So your obligations as a data controller apply to identifiable data of the living. And explicit consent is required for sensitive identifiable information. But also there's many exemptions for research purposes. And those of you who came last week will have a very good idea of some of the things that Liam was talking about. So these exemptions are, exist, for example, under Section 33 of the Data Protection Act. There's also the right to privacy <coughs> under the Human Rights Act. And the right to privacy is very much about the protection of human autonomy and dignity, the right to control the dissemination of information about one's life, and the right to the esteem and respect of other people. So quite broad. But these are personal rights. They apply to the individual. They're not property rights. So the situation that we have is that no one owns the data. And if we're thinking about the difference between your data and samples and the samples and data that you may hold as part of a research project, in the case of data, you will personally have rights over that data, but you actually will not own the data that you hold in your database. You may have rights over the software, which are intellectual property rights, but in actual fact, nobody owns the data. So what are your obligations? As I said before, the obligations as a researcher or somebody who holds data is to comply with the Data Protection Act and the fair processing principles. You also have an obligation of confidentiality and also you must comply with the research governance mechanisms that we have in place. You must apply for research ethics committee approval when you're carrying out research. But also there's obligations under the Human Tissue Act. And I wanted to talk about the Human Tissue Act just briefly because um, someone asked about it last week. So the Human Tissue Act came into existence in 2004 and actually grew out of the incidents that had happened out, uh, in Alder Hay and actually changed the whole landscape of doing research in legal terms. So it uses consent to protect individual, uh, to donors' interests and it actually extends this from initial removal to subsequent uses. 
And you need appropriate consent for use except for if there's existing holdings, and by that it's holdings um, collections that were established before 2004, imported collections, so collections coming from a different country, and also material that is over 100 years old. And it's not unlawful to analyse DNA from anonymised existing holdings. So it means that tissue from the living may be stored for use and used without consent, provided that the research is ethically approved, the tissue is anonymised, such as the researcher is not in possession of information identifying the person from whose body the material has come and is not likely to come into possession of it. So there's a, there's a slight overlap in, in the wording with the Data Protection Act. So what about DNA samples? Because, and you may have tissue, but you may have DNA samples that are derived from blood samples. So the requirements for DNA are that basically under Section 45, it's an offence to have bodily material with the intent of analysing its DNA without qualifying consent. So if you have bodily material, then you need to have consent. There's different kinds of consent in the Act, but you need qualifying consent. But in the case of DNA, if you actually remove the DNA from the cell and no whole cells remain, it's not classified as bodily material. So therefore, once you've extracted the DNA, you can actually do a number of things with it and you do not need consent. That isn't to say that you are not required to get Research Ethics Committee approval. But according to the Human Tissue, uh, sorry, the, um, yeah, the Human Tissue Act, you do not need consent. So in conclusion, there's actually different requirements for samples and data, and we can talk about property rights and the ownership of a sample, but it just raises a lot of different questions. We can't actually talk about the ownership of data but we have different obligations and responsibilities regarding personal and confidential information. So I hope that's given you a sense of kind of what the legal landscape in this area is. And if you need further information, the Human Tissue Authority actually has um, a number of codes of practice, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But also the Medical Research Council has a very good toolkit and enables you to kind of go through the Human Tissue Act and work out exactly what your obligations are. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.